And just by way of reminder before we read this morning's passage, we have gone, starting in Genesis, uh, we've seen God create this world and everything in it. If you're in our reading plan, you see the fall in Genesis 3. You see the promise of God in Genesis 12 where he calls Abram out of his idolatry and says, go to the land that I will show you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So there's this Genesis 12 promise that is given to Abram, whose name then becomes Abraham. And we see over centuries, we see then uh, where they land, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They end up, Genesis ends in Egypt. Exodus, the book of Exodus, begins in exile, not the Babylonian exile, but slavery in Egypt. They're not in the land that God was prom- had promised, but then Moses leads them out, this land, and as Moses leads them out of the land, um, God is there delivering them. We saw the Passover through the plagues and the Passover lamb. We then, when we went through that passage, saw Jesus as our true Passover lamb. We're going to get more of that this morning. And then through their disobedience, they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. So God has a land for them. They're about to go into the land and the spies go out and uh, most of the spies who are checking out the land are like, we can't do it. We know God's, you know, God said it, but they're too big, they're too powerful, we just can't do it. And there's these two guys who are like, no, we can do it because God said this is the land he's going to give us. So let's, let's do it. So that, nation, or that generation is punished, they can't go into the land, so Joshua then brings the nation into the land. They, if you read the book of Judges, you'll find these phrases like, but they did not drive out, but they did not drive out. So God was asking them, commanding them to go and to drive out the nations that were in the land, and they didn't. And even, you know, a tribe might go, well, we don't want the allotment God gave us. We'll go find another one. And so they tried to kind of move the land that God gave them. The tribe uh, tries to go, well, yeah, people there are a little too crazy. So we see from even the onset though God's rich blessings and the way that he's caring for the nation and the way that he's leading the nation of Israel, their disobedience, which is going to be a pretty simple or common theme that you see as you read the scriptures, is that we don't seem to be able to do the things that God has asked of us, and God fulfills his promises, and he does the things that he says he would do. So we don't do the things we say we would do, God does the things he says that he would do. So the nation goes through, uh, in the book of Judges, different cycles of good moments and bad moments. Uh, But God then begins his kingdom. He actually sets a king on the throne. It's Saul at first because the people are like, we want a king and that king's going to be great. Uh, And God's like, no, they're rejecting me. Uh, God knew there was going to be a king. It wasn't like an an addition to the plan because even he's instructing through Moses, when you have a king set up over you, just know that he shouldn't do this, he shouldn't do that. So it's not as if adding the king was a new thing, but the people kind of jumped the gun. And we're like, we want a king like the nations around us. That was their line. We want to look like the people around us. And they have a leader like this, and we need a leader, and we need power, and we need might, and we need strength. So they have Saul. Saul doesn't do too well, if you remember the Saul story. Then we have David. David does all right. He's a bit of a fool, just like any one of us. But we see, and we had a sermon on it, that God promises David that there will be a king who comes that will be on the throne forever. So we recognize that God has given this promise to David that there's going to be this Davidic king. This king is going to be there, and his, uh, his reign will not end. So there's this guy who is spoken of to David that we are going, who, who is this? Even if you rewind back to Moses, God said to, you know, to the people through Moses, there's going to be a prophet who is raised up, who is going to come, and you're going to listen to him. 
And so we have these kind of promises of things that are to come, and we're not really sure what happens. So we have Saul, then David, then Solomon, the next king in the united monarchy. But Solomon um, decides to live more for this world, even though he's the wisest guy that's ever lived. He lives more for this world than he does for the Lord. After Solomon, the kingdom is divided. And we have 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. Um, And we then track through the history of the nation with disobedient kings in the north and some disobedient kings in the south and uh, a few that are obedient. So we have bad kings in the north and good and bad kings in the south. And God is still faithful to his people, but we end both of those kind of reigns, uh, those moments with those tribes, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, going into captivity at different times. So the northern kingdom goes earlier, so about 722. The Assyrian nation grabs them and moves them along. And then in the southern kingdom, Babylonians, a little later, uh, 586, they take them away. And so now we're trying to, we, we, we mainly follow at that point in time with our prophets the work of what God's going to do in the southern kingdom. So that's some of what we track with, though there are prophets in the northern kingdom as well. So we are in exile, and God is still in these moments of exile promising that he is going to do a work in his people. He's frustrated. We, we looked at a sermon on like the new covenant, which hadn't come yet. <clears throat> He's frustrated with the way that they are representing him even amongst the nations. So they were scattered for their disobedience, but even in their scattering, the nations are going, who is this? What are you doing? Who is your God? Well, God promises that he, and this is one of our memory passages, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so we have this promise that God gives that he's going to do a work of transformation because the people themselves can't do that work. And so we see God promising this new work that is going to come even while his people are in exile, while they are uh, under punishment and discipline for their lack of obedience and their lack of confidence in what God has said. God's going to bring them back, and we do start to see them come back, right? We see returns, that God moves the heart of King Cyrus, and Cyrus makes a decree, and that decree is you can go back. And so they go back, and slowly but surely, you know, different groups of people start to go back, but not all of them, and we talked about that, because they've kind of made home in other places. And so they don't just have this mass return, there's kind of three waves of return, and they start to rebuild the temple and rebuild the place of worship. Uh, but time goes on, and this was our Malachi sermon, as time goes on, as always is the case, people start to go, away. is God really the God who keeps his promises and they start to get a little lax in even how they worship and how they priests are performing and the offerings that they give. And so God responds <clears throat> with, I'm going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for me. I'm going to send a messenger who's going to prepare the way for me and, and the person coming into their temple. And we have these kind of allusions to what's going to happen. 400 years later, we enter in with we, our sermon was on John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And we see the entrance of the Son of God, Jesus, into this world, heralded by a messenger, John the Baptist, who is proclaiming who's going to come and the promise of God that is coming through Jesus. And John the Baptist himself is like, I'm not this guy. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the, I'm not the one that you might think I am. No, it's the person who's coming after me. 
And so we follow the ministry of Jesus. Follow the ministry of Jesus through this world, and we begin to see Jesus is different. Jesus is, Jesus is doing things differently, and Jesus is being responded to even by the nation of Israel, and the leaders of Israel is different, differently. <clears throat> so people are like, man, this guy's speaking with one who has authority. They seem to, he seems to know what he's doing. He knows what he's saying. They try to catch him in little, little questions about the law and what's obedient and what's not, and he never, ever falls into their trap, always responds with Scripture, and he does, Jesus has this way. Anytime you read the Gospels, Jesus has this way of, of lifting the veil on your heart and making you go, man, I stink. And so he always has this way of bringing it back to the heart. In all these interactions, he is revealing something else that is coming. Well, as we have seen his birth, we saw the passage on his temptation. We went through just some of his teachings where you get to realize this guy is different. His view of life is different. His understanding of what is true is different. But there has been this thing spoken, and we did this in our sermon in Isaiah, where there is somebody who comes, this servant who comes and dies for the people. And thus far in our telling of the story, we haven't gotten to that yet. But that's where we will be this morning as we read from John chapter 19. It's a little bit of a bigger chunk. And so John chapter 19, you could turn there with me. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, they will be kind of behind me as a backstop. But um, turn there to John chapter 19 as we read about the thing God has spoken Starting in 16, just the second half, 16b, they grab the second half of that verse division. So they took Jesus. He's been uh, sent, to, sent to die. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather the man said, I'm the King of the Jews, because they don't want to give him, ascribe to him anything that's actually, you know, might make them lose their power. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, <clears throat> he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That disciple is John. He doesn't speak of himself as John. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, that's John, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who, uh, earlier who had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with, with the spices, as it was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Pray with me. Father, we will hear this morning and have heard this morning that Jesus has secured our redemption. And we are who we are this morning because of the work of Jesus and what he did. So God, whatever might be hindering us today in our minds and our hearts and our preparation and even our driving here and the conversations we've had with our spouse or our family or our friends or our kids or the conversations that we didn't have, whatever might be distracting us in this moment, I ask for you to remove it so we can hear you today. And you might guide us in your truth. Guide us to Jesus, we prayed in his name. Amen. Um, did anyone here grow up in a tradition that recited creeds? Anybody do that? Nobody? Just me? Yeah. Um, I did. Yeah, Blaine, thank you so much. Go Tigers. Um, <clears throat> uh, I did. I grew up at a Methodist church. I grew up is, a, is probably an overstatement. I went when I went. Um, so I would say grow up. It's where I came to faith in high school. Um, but uh, there are different creeds that we use. It might have been the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or whatever it might be. And I don't remember a ton of the services that I was a part of, but I do remember that we would recite things. And there are lots and lots of creeds. There's also a band named Creed, which some of you might be a big fan of. Uh, but a few of them are rather widespread. They're kind of recited all over the globe by Christians. They, they say this in any tradition, in any space, in any place. A few have had staying power for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why in the world would I want to recite the same thing over and over again every week? Well, there's a cool thing that creeds do and creedal language can do, which is they distill the core, the core beliefs of our faith. Some of the oldest ones are integral to how we understand God. So one, one such creed is the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest of which we know. The Apostles didn't write it, but you know, it got a good name, so it feels like the Apostles wrote it. It came, came, around, came around after the era of the Apostles. 
Uh, but maybe you have heard this before, and if you have heard this creed, great. If you haven't, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, but essentially, this creed states what Christians must believe. Not, you know, there are things that you believe that it does not state, but there are not things that you can't believe that it does state. You can't reject aspects of this and still be called a Christian because its whole goal was to distill and condense down the truth of Scripture in a way that could be remembered. Now, you also have to think about times when people didn't have readily available copies of the Bible to go to, and so they had to create ways for them to engage in the Word by reciting its truths. And so you might have heard it before, but it goes like this. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, which may or may not be the way you say it. And when we do it as a family, we we say he descended to the grave, uh, but that's the way we say it. So he descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. One day he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, which means universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So I say, you can't reject any one of those statements and still be a Christian because they are so central to who we are and what we believe, and the language was bound up so tightly so that you could actually see. Now, theology often happens by bump, which means you generally formulate, formulate what you believe when it is being challenged. That isn't to say that the belief just came into existence, but when somebody challenges it, you go, well, let me think about it. So if I ask you this question, hey, how was your day? And, you know, like, you give the general husband the response of, it was fine it was fine, right? It was a fine day. So you say it was fine. Well, a wise and discerning spouse knows how to ask certain questions to get from you more than just, it was fine, right? So they, just, they, they know ways to kind of pull out things from you so that you don't just say it was fine. But it takes that bit of interaction to pull it out. The creeds pull out from the Christian, the things that are true, from the scriptures, the things that are true, in order to help us know what we stand upon. And we're often used in discipling, training up the congregation to go, this is what, this is what you have to believe. You can't not believe this. Um, now, you, can't, you don't have to understand every nuance of it, but you can't reject this and still kind of be a part of what's going on. That's why this language is so important. So if you were asked, what is the gospel? And sometimes we, we say, it's all the gospel. Well, if you say, if you say what is the gospel in its points, uh, you might take somebody to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which kind of just details it, the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you were to ask, what do Christians believe, you could recite this. You could say, this is what Christians believe. What do Christians believe? And you, know, and, and you just stay right there, the primary truths that any Christian anywhere might believe. This is why, just as an aside, I don't like the flippant language we use with the word heresy. Like, heresy means... A, a thing delivered in such a way that if you believe it, you reject God. And so we're like, well, you know, I thought Jesus wore this kind of sandals. Is that heretical? I'm like, no. No, it's not heretical. Heresy means you are messing with what is fundamental to being a Christian and 
expecting or demanding that people would adhere to it. So, snap back to reality. Yep, I do listen to music. Now, this morning we're not going to go through the whole creed. We're in John 19, and if you have your Bible with uh, chapter divisions, you will see it. But we're going to look at one line, essentially, of the creed was crucified, died, and was buried. Those are the three things that we see in the creed this morning. We need to keep coming back to this truth. So if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian or you're doubting Jesus or you're not sure about what Christians believe, I think this is a good time to kind of go, okay, well, this is, this is kind of, this, a lot of what we do here hangs on what happens in John 19 and as the telling goes in the other Gospels. So these three elements are in full view this morning, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. We will not get to his resurrection until next week, his resurrection and the Great Commission, so we're just going to kind of, even though the resurrection is kind of the thing that makes it all be real, uh, we're going to just wait right here, knowing that it's all happened, we're going to talk about the importance of these three pieces that did happen. And the reason for that is because these things were spoken of in Scripture that Jesus fulfilled. Also, I'm going to make some statements about his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, but I'm not going to draw a hard line in between each one of those. So just imagine there's a dotted line in between those things, and what I say about one kind of applies to the other because all of it was necessary. All of it was necessary. So when you hear me say these things, like they, they lean on each other much more, and even next week in the resurrection, they're going to lean on each other some more. So we're going to start with this. In his crucifixion, the first part, <clears throat> 16 through 27, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. It's coming right out of Isaiah 53. In his crucifixion, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. We read it here. So they took Jesus, verse 16, now in 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate wrote on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, which is Inri. If you ever see Inri put above a cross, it's just not, it's not language we speak, but Jesus of Nazareth, Iesus, Nazareth, whatever, you know, king of the Jews. So Rexus, Judea, right? So there's our little Inri that you needed to know what that meant. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. When you see that on a cross, that's what it means. So Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription from the place uh, where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. But the chief priest was like, hey, don't write that. Write, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Remember, Pilate had some personal doubts that Jesus was guilty, but not so much so that he didn't go through with it. And poor guy is now stuck in the creed as the one who did it. So... Um, we will always remember that this actually happened this way. Now, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them in four parts. Jesus is still alive and still on the cross in this moment. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so that they said to one another, let us cast lots. Let us cast lots. See whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture that said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. There's either three or four people here, depending on how you read it. I'm going to say four. His mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, is how this reads, is maybe his mother's sister is this person. But I'm going to say mother, mother, sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. A lot of, lot of ladies there. 
And they're going to be important also at the time of the resurrection. Two Marys show up there. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He's talking about John, the author of this gospel. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And just that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So we start with crucifixion, which was heinous, inhumane, humiliating as a form of punishment. It actually became outlawed as a way to kill people, not in this moment, but later. It became outlawed as a form of punishment because it was a little barbaric, and the Romans were good at it. So uh, you could read anything about it, but there's, here's one distillation. Roman crucifixions were desires to cause maximum pain for a prolonged period. Victims' feet and wrists were usually nailed to a wooden cross, which would have hold them upright while they suffered a slow and agonizing death, often taking several days. As such, it was usually carried out only for the execution of slaves in Roman society. The researchers who are speaking, the bodies were often left on the cross to rot and be eaten by animals, but in some cases they were removed and buried, which we see here because Jesus was Jewish. And they did not want to have a body on the cross at that time. But you can hear, no one wants to be crucified. And yet here we have Jesus, who we have seen in these sermons through the reading of the scripture and our reading plan together. We have seen Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, to seek and save the lost, being crucified. Crucified. What does John reveal to us in these few verses about Jesus and his obedience, even in his crucifixion? Well, several things. First, John shows us in this first section that Jesus does everything willingly. Willingly. If you read with us in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes, Father, I don't want to have to take this cup. But if there is no other way for this to happen, not my will but yours be done. Jesus does what he does willingly. Jesus went bearing his own cross. And while the soldiers crucified him, they might have thought that they were in control, but they were not. John 10, 18 would say it like this. No one takes it, that'd be his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So we see Jesus willingly taking punishment. Though he was innocent, he does this willingly. Jesus is deliberate here. He is not just an innocent bystander, even though he's innocent. He's not a passive participant, even though people are actively crucifying him. This all comes from Jesus' purposeful activity in obedience to his Father. He set his face toward Jerusalem, which is a line you'll hear in the Gospels, to die for us in fulfillment of Scripture, which is the second thing. So first we see Jesus doing this willingly. Secondly, we see that Jesus does this in fulfillment of Scripture, which John keeps going back to. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. So let's just look at a few of them. Jesus is fulfilling scripture. Take the example of Jesus' clothes being distributed amongst the soldiers in 1924. John quotes Psalm 22, which is what we actually went through on Good Friday, 
Uh, but John, he quotes Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which prophesies details of Christ's crucifixion. One of the roles of a soldier was to strip down the accused, further humiliating him during the crucifixion. Here they take Jesus' clothing from him and they cast lots over one. So they divide, but they also cast lots. And why do they cast lots? Because one of the pieces of clothing was woven nicely together and they didn't want to ruin it. And so they divide his clothes up among them and also cast lots for them. How in the world can David be that specific? If it were, you know, this clothing, there's no like, well, hold on, let's keep that shirt, it's real nice. Like, no, doesn't happen. John wants us to see something about Jesus. He isn't just one who is dying, but he is the one who has come to die for us. I would also look at this on that last paragraph, Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture, in uh, verse 26, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he looks at John and he says, behold your mother. Now what is he doing here? He is providing for his mother as firstborn son, knowing that he no longer can. So one of the uh, Matthew scholars, Kostenberger, he writes it like this. Jesus' mother, who was almost certainly widowed and probably in her early 50s, with little or no personal income, was dependent on Jesus, her oldest son. In keeping with the biblical injunction, injunction to honor one's parents, Jesus makes here provision for his mother. Now, just to stop for a moment, have you ever been in agony? Have you ever been in excruciating pain, humiliating pain? Maybe, maybe you think, I'm pretty good, I'm solid, I could totally hold on to this, but I doubt that you are able to think about anything but yourself or anyone but yourself in that moment. You stub your toe and life becomes all about you. Right? Hammer your nail. Life becomes all about you. Jesus, on the cross, continues to obey Scripture by providing for his mother someone to take care of her. Now, you might go, well, why not his brothers or the rest of his family? Because the Scripture tells us that it is likely that his family at this time still did not believe. His mother did, but you also actually have passages where people are like, eh, I'm not sure he believed, or he's who he is. Which is why it's pretty cool that James, Jesus' half-brother later, is like, he's the guy. It's hard to admit your brother's God. Now, what does Jesus provide for us in this crucifixion? What does he take on in this crucifixion? The punishment for our sins. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. You might remember the memory verse, but if not, we're going to have just a moment here. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our sin was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. 
We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own ways, but the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. What is Jesus doing? That. He's doing that. He's fulfilling what Isaiah spoke. The punishment that is due every person for their sins is taken up in Jesus. God is holy. God is perfect. God cannot eternally tolerate evil and disobedience, and yet we cannot perfectly pay the price for our disobedience against an eternal and perfect God. He isn't like us, though. God doesn't have tolerable levels of impurity. I mean, if you work in any industry that has to deal with you know, pure elements, there's always some threshold. It can be this amount impure and we can still use it. But not so with the Lord. You cannot have some tiny percentage of impurity and then have it all still work out. Don't ever mistake his patience with us, with his tolerance of our sin. God is patient so that we might turn to him. But Jesus' death on the cross demonstrates that he does not tolerate our sin. And that's a difference because we might think the longer we live, and this happened as we were reading through the Old Testament, oh, God must, you know, God must not care. He must not be interested. He must not be this. He must not be that. But we find very quickly that God is interested. God does care. And God does not have any room to tolerate sinfulness. It is his patience. So God does everything and we do nothing. If you've read this old book, it's from the 4th century, but it's called On the Incarnation by Athanasius. It reads like this. If any honest Christian wants to know why he suffered death on the cross and not in some other way, we answer it thus. In no way was it expedient for us. Indeed, the Lord offered for our sakes the one death that was supremely good. He had come to bear the curse that lay on us. And how could he become a curse Otherwise than by accepting the accursed death. And that death is the cross. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Again, the death of the Lord is the ransom of all. And by it, the middle wall of partition, which is quoted from Ephesians, is broken down and the call of the Gentiles comes about. How could he have called us if he had not been crucified? For it is only on the cross that a man dies with arms outstretched. Here again, we see the fitness of death and of those outstretched arms. It, is, it was that he might draw his ancient people with the one and the Gentiles with the other and join both together in himself. Even so, he foretold the manner of his redeeming death. If I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. Jesus must die for us to be made right. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus dies. He isn't just crucified painfully, he also dies. And this is the second thing that we see. In his death, Jesus secured our redemption. Secured our redemption. So, verses 28, 29, and 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put up a sponge full of the sour wine and a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received it, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So two things to draw attention to right here. First is, yet again, John pointing that Jesus fulfills scripture. 
Psalm 69, 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Notice what Jesus was given. Sour wine. However, more important than that, verse 28, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. In verse 30, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Well, what is finished? What is finished? Jesus, knowing that all has been finished, cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. Is it his crucifixion? My crucifixion's finished, it's time to die. Is it just his life is finished? What did he perceive that allowed for him to go, it is finished? What Jesus finished was the necessary work required to secure our redemption. Every bit of scripture, every prophecy spoken, everything needed for people to be reconciled to God Jesus did. And so when he recognizes this, he then, we said this in the last section, willingly gave up his spirit. No element, no part, no moment, no breath, no second of Jesus' death happened by chance. But it was all on purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you're familiar with it, but it reads like this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, in him that we might become the righteousness of God. Through the work of Jesus, we gain what we could have never earned, God's righteousness. I mean, I kind of have to laugh. I just go, I can't, I couldn't do that. Jesus goes, it is finished. Because he became sin for us. Now, let's stop for a moment. How deeply do you believe this truth? You might think that this is a fairy tale. Oh, it's just a cool story. Uh, some people are like, well, the disciples kind of made it up to make him look like God. I think it's pretty hard to make this up with this level of precision. I mean, we try to play the telephone game, and we can't, you know, it's like, you know, you're great. And it's like, I'm a reptile. Like, you don't, like, I don't know how it happens, but by the time you get from the first person to say it to the last person who says it, it has become something totally different except as we read the testimony of Jesus. Now, some might be here this morning and think, I don't need that level of redemption. I don't need that. The human spirit is resilient. Only weak people would believe in a message like this, which is what some say. Only weak people need religion. Only weak people need something like that to use as a crutch to live their life. Well, if that is the case, yeah. Only weak people believe this. Only weak people believe this. Only people who have come to the end of themselves and have nothing else believe this. The cross is a great juxtaposition, God dying. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. Other religions cannot accept this is true because God can't die. And yet because God has revealed himself, Father, Son, Spirit, three persons, one essence for all of eternity, 
There's a unique way that the Lord is able to take the punishment for our sins and provide the forgiveness for our sins that does not exist in any other structure. You are redeemed through the work of Jesus. Now, in his crucifixion, he took the punishment. In his death, he secured our redemption. Now we have his burial. And we won't stay here long, but what we will see is in his burial, we see Jesus showed us that he was truly human. So, verses 31 to the end. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. They were running out of time to prepare the bodies. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first, broke the guy on the other side, and they came to Jesus and they did not break his legs because he had already died. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw this has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another says they will look on him whom they have pierced. So after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body down. Pilate gave him permission. He came and took his body. Nicodemus from John chapter 3, we call him Nick at night, because he came to Jesus at night. Earlier had come to Jesus by night, came and bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as was the burial custom. Now, in the place where he laid was a garden. The garden was a new tomb, which is actually Joseph's tomb. Matthew tells us that. There was a new tomb. No one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, there's much we could say here, but I'm going to do two specific things. First... And I think we've caught it by now, but Jesus, even in his death, is fulfilling scripture. He gave up his spirit, but his legs weren't broken. His legs weren't broken. Now let's think about this for a second. Two passages to consider. The first is Exodus 12, 46, speaking about the Passover lamb. And we read this. The Passover meal shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. That the Passover lamb spoken of in Exodus, when, it, when you did the Passover ceremony, you could not use a lamb that had broken bones. Interesting, Jesus, our Passover lamb, had no broken bones, even though it was the custom to break the bones. Now, if you studied this or heard this before, then you know why. When, uh, often in crucifixion, you would need to breathe, and you would have to force yourself up in order to do it because you would be slumped over, and so you'd have to <gasps> provide that. So when you break legs, you remove the ability to lift up, which then brings about suffocation, which then brings about death. So they get to Jesus to do that, to expedite death, and Jesus doesn't need it because he's already given up his spirit because he's our Passover lamb. The second is Psalm 34, 20. God's deliverance of the righteous, it reads like this. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And so here we see Jesus, the Passover lamb, providing forgiveness for those who believe and the truly righteous one of God, unbroken in his body, though he is dead. His bones are not broken. Zechariah 12, 10, which we read about. 
They will look on me as though as one who has been pierced. It's another prophecy spoken. And I appreciate John because it gives me some comfort to know that he says this in verse, 30, in, in verse 37. And again, another scripture says, which is I feel like the preacher's ability to go, I know there's a passage that says this, but I'm not going to know quite where at this moment. So that's what John does for me, gives me the ability to do that. So John makes this connection. He's the son of God pierced for us. And then Jesus comes down off the cross because his body needs to be buried. The Jews are going, we have to go ahead and bury this guy. And he's put in a rich man's tomb, a new tomb, placed there by Joseph, who was a secret follower of Jesus, who believed in who he was, but was struggling, I would say, to reject the identity that he had. You have to think about it. If you are a Jewish leader at that time and you think that history is moving in this direction and then Jesus shows up, you have to undo a lot and give up a lot. So what is Joseph doing? He's weighing all that. But then, at the death of Jesus, he can wait no longer. Pilate, give me his body. Let me do what I can. I have a tomb. Matthew 27 shows us this. Even in Jesus' burial, we see something interesting. He was not buried as a common criminal. Wasn't buried as a criminal. He was given a new tomb of a rich man. He was buried like a king. He was prepared for like one of status. Even in his death. So the statement, and was buried in the creed, was crucified, died, and was buried, might seem unnecessary. But you don't bury things that aren't dead. Right? Like if grandma has a hard time waking up, from a nap, you don't go, let's go ahead and get the coffin ready. Must be over, right? Like you have to be sure if you're gonna put someone in the ground. I'm thinking of old, old. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if you are younger than 100, that applies to none of you in this room. You don't go, well, game over. You're sure. You're sure, even in, like, even in our world, right? The medical profession, like time of death, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Like they, they want to figure that out. Like somebody needs to come in and call it. Well, it might not have been called like that in the Old Testament or the New Testament time, but you are not going to bury someone in a new tomb that you think is still having a beating heart. You won't take that time. You won't take that preparation. So it's important for us to realize in this moment that they buried him because they knew he was dead. They knew it. It might seem extra or unnecessary for us, but burial means finality. The assumption is we're not going to see that person again. It's over. It's done. In Jesus' words, it's finished. But Jesus' burial leaves us no doubt that he actually died. Which leaves us no doubt that his death mattered, which leaves no doubt, just backtrack it, leaves us no doubt that his work on the cross and his crucifixion took the punishment for our sins. Now, all of this means nothing if he doesn't raise, right? If he doesn't rise from the dead, then it means nothing. 
It means man, did he get like 99.9% of the things God said right, but not all of them. And so we're going to continue this next week because the reason that we gather is because Jesus rose. The reason that we gather is because it doesn't stop there. And so we'll be following that next week, but let's think about that phrase, crucified, died, and was buried, that little part of a creed that has been spoken for centuries. In his crucifixion, he takes the punishment for our sins. In his death, he secures our redemption. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, in his, yeah, death, he secures our redemption. And in his burial, he shows us that he is truly dead. So here's where it leaves us. To accept Christ's death as God's provision for our sins and for our righteousness. We accept it or we reject it, but we cannot stand in the middle. If you have thought up a better solution for how one man has fulfilled everything that has been written in Scripture and willingly gave up his life on a cross and whose bones were not broken, please let me know. Because this has never been recreated. We can't get near it. But one thing is true. History changed in John 19. So my question is, has it changed you? And has it changed us?